Our Bible reading today comes from John 19, verse 38 to 20, verse 18. On the plain Holy Bible, it's on page 768. Later, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices, with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the, from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing here. But, there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, she said, why are you crying? For who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around, she turned toward, toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he, he had said these things to her. Uh, let us come before our Lord in a word of prayer and then consider this good passage from John's Gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time that you've gathered us this morning and we pray that we'd be strengthened and encouraged as we think carefully about your word from John's Gospel today. Uh, Lord, help us to be having our hearts right before you, to be among those who are ready to be challenged and to think carefully about what it means to put these things uh, into action in our lives. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in the passage that Thomas read out for us today, I, I think you would have noticed that uh, it was a bit of a journey. It was a journey from some sorrow where we're in uh, Calvary and Jesus has, has just died uh, to a movement to joy uh, by the time we got to the end of that passage. And I was thinking about an analogy that this sorrow to joy theme could be compared to. I, I started to think about the water slide. You've got the sorrow of going up the stairs and then the joy of going down the slide. And I had a good time as, as a kid, but didn't really quite capture the strong feelings that are in this and the tone that's there. And I thought perhaps this could be compared more to the late stages of childbirth. Now, you'll have to stick with me here. I'll, I'll show you where there's strong feelings. Having been present at each of the births of my five children, I, I think it's safe to say that the end stages of childbirth can be a tricky journey. In general terms, then be, there can be some sorrow during the, the labour and the, the pain at that time. Before the joy of baby arriving, there's sorrow to joy. There's tears in the labour at times, and yet there's also tears uh, when baby is born. So there's, there's some really strong feelings that take place in childbirth that we also see taking place in this passage today. I think we can see that there has been a, an under, understandable time for the tears. Certainly at the end of Luke's Gospel, we're reminded that there's uh, women who are wailing and mourning at Jesus' death. And yet by the end of this um, period that we look at in our passages today, we see that there's a great deal of joy. That's the, the note that it ends on. And whilst there's been tears at the death of Jesus, the story does move on from there. And it's now moving on to a time where the disciples need to act. They need to, some of them need to get beyond their tears and, and start being practical. And so the tears need to be replaced with the need for some of them to face their fears. And that's where we're at in our first point in the outline, the need to face our fears. Now in this section, we meet two men. And they've both had to face their fears in order to serve their Lord. We see that in John chapter 19, verse 38 to 42, where we see they take responsibility for not only taking Jesus down from the cross, but also wrapping him in linen and then placing him in a tomb that nobody had been laid in before. And so the question is, who are these men? Well, the first man that we meet is a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, which is a little town some 20 k's northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, we're told in the other gospel accounts that Joseph is actually a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And from Matthew 27, we learn that he's also a rich man and that the tomb that Jesus is going to be placed in was actually Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and that it was a new tomb cut out of rock and so it's not just by chance that they they stumble on this child oh, here's a tomb we'll put him in there this is planned beforehand the second man is Nicodemus he was uh, from among the Pharisees and also a member of the Jewish ruling council 
And earlier in John's Gospel, we know that he came to Jesus at night. And it seems that he comes at night because he's anxious that he'll be discovered as also being a disciple of Jesus, one who believed in Jesus. And so Nicodemus wants to keep a low profile. Well, what did these men do? Well, Joseph of Arimathea presumably had links with Pilate by being a member of the Sanhedrin. And so he was able to speak with Pilate and get access to Pilate so that he could ask for Jesus' body to be taken down. And normally the, uh, the bodies of the criminals uh, were, were not given a proper burial. They were actually uh, just buried outside of the city, not in a, a proper tomb. Uh, and for those who uh, committed the crimes of sedition, where they were seen as a threat to Caesar, uh, some of those, they didn't even uh, leave them go outside the city for burial. They left them to the birds of prey. But the fact that Pilate allows Joseph to take Jesus' body down and give it a proper burial possibly shows that Pilate didn't even believe that Jesus had done anything wrong to start with. And some commentators have drawn attention to the fact that it might even be a a further snub to the Jews who probably would have liked Jesus' body just to hang or be taken outside of the city. It's a further snub to the Jews who uh, forced his hand to have Jesus crucified that he, he literally tried to wash his hands of. So Joseph goes out of his way, he goes out on a bit of a limb to risk standing with Jesus uh, and as he stands with someone who's been, um, I guess, charged with sedition or treason, uh, a threat to Caesar, uh, Joseph runs the risk of seeing, being seen to be standing as one who was also no friend of Caesar's. And so it's a risky thing for him. And he's just described earlier as a disciple of Jesus, but one secretly because he feared the Jews. And so Joseph is also taking a risk, not only with the Romans, but he's taking a risk of distancing himself further from his own Jewish community. And yet he takes courage and goes out on a limb to serve the Lord in this last act of kindness. But what about Nicodemus? What does he do? Well, where formerly he went to Jesus at night, he now comes further out into the light to be, to be seen that he is a disciple of Jesus and he wants to serve Jesus also. He brings more than 30 kilograms of spices, the, the very expensive myrrh and the aloes, which is a, a sandalwood powder that gets crushed up. Uh, and these, these spices were to be... Um, it was a bit different to the Egyptians. The Egyptians took the organs out of the body and packed it with spices and that type of thing. Uh, But the Jews, they wrapped the spices in with the linen uh, in order to make the the smell just a bit better. And that's what um, Nicodemus has done. He's decided to to bring this very expensive gift to make the burial of Jesus nicer. Well, earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And in our story today, we see that these two men, they come living in the Lord's light, don't they? 
They don't stay in darkness, but instead they seek to serve the Lord. Uh, There was a time when they wanted to be secret disciples, but here we see that they're they're putting their faith into action. They're they're coming out, so to speak, as disciples of Jesus. And they've both had to face their fears and have courage to serve the Lord in the way that they did. They're good examples of people who are no longer being secret disciples. But there are times when we can be tempted to be secret disciples too, aren't there? Have you ever felt that temptation to be a secret disciple, to keep a low profile as a Christian? We can also fear, in the way that these guys have feared, we can fear whether we're approved of. We can fear whether we're accepted or rejected by the people of the world or in the communities that God's put us. And we also have to deal with the uncertainty at times of how people will react when they learn that we are Christians. And so we could be tempted to be overwhelmed with these things and and try to be secret disciples as well. But in all this fear of people and and worrying about what others think, we, we might miss the point, which is the most important one, which is to fear the Lord and to seek the honour of God rather than seek the honour of other people. And Jesus reminds his disciples of this in John chapter 12. He says, my father will honour the one who serves me. And so part of the challenge for us this morning is to think this week about what it is going to mean for us not to be secret disciples and those who seek to serve the Lord and to fear him more than people. Well, this passage now moves on from burial on the Friday and the time rolls on in the next scene to Sunday morning. And we see evidence for the risen Lord in 20 verses 1 through to 9. Now, occasionally, I think this, uh, this reminds me of, a, of a, a little game that we sometimes play at my place where we're trying to... Uh, I guess, find something and, and see that things are becoming clearer. Occasionally, uh, when I'm looking for socks at my place, I'm, I'm looking for socks amongst six other people's socks who live with me. And when the socks are there on the table and I'm looking at the pile, I'm trying to find matching socks, one of my kids might spot one that I'm missing. And as I'm fumbling my way towards the lost sock... A kid might say, warmer, getting, getting warmer now, hot, hot, boiling, and then the favourite call, which is lava, when I've found the lost sock. Well, I'm kind of reminded of that children's game a little bit as we uh, read this section in uh, 21 to 9, because something's gone missing And it's far more important than one of my work socks. But maybe it's not even so much that something's gone missing, but so much as someone has gone missing. And uh, on this Sunday morning, this first day of the week, we see that Mary is there, Mary Magdalene. She's described as a a woman whom seven 
some demons had come out of in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 8. But she's there and she's distressed. The stone's been removed from the entrance to the tomb and she draws the conclusion that somebody has taken the Lord away. And so she runs and she runs to tell Peter and John. He's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote this book. And then there's more running. There's more running in these few verses than in this whole book put together. And perhaps the running's giving us a sense of urgency that they're so keen uh, to look after Jesus. Well, John gets there in verse 5 and he sees first the strips of linen lying there. And in verse 6, Peter goes, goes ahead of him into the tomb and you can see that the the strips of linen and the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head had been placed in separate areas. And at this point in the story, we're starting to get to that point where we might be saying, getting warmer, it's getting warmer now. And we read in verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. You might be able to say boiling at this point. He's, he's finally, the penny's dropped. Ah, Jesus is missing. Wow, he's risen. In verse 9, we're told they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's interesting, isn't it, to read that he says uh, he saw and believed because we'd expect that uh, John had been a believer for a while now, hadn't we? I mean, he left his nets and went and followed the Lord and he'd been with Jesus the whole time. But maybe his convictions, maybe his belief got a bit dulled uh, as he saw Jesus die. Maybe that, that threw him into a, a bit of a cloudy way of thinking about what he did believe in. Perhaps he'd forgotten what Jesus had said ahead of time about how he would also not just die but rise from the dead. Either way, the message this morning is that John has been able to see evidence for the risen Jesus and that's provided a firm foundation for his faith. On the basis of seeing this, he does believe. And that's also in accord with the whole message of this gospel as we see at the end of the gospel, the reasons why this gospel's been written in John 20, 31, we read, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we're given this evidence before us today also so that we might have a living trust in Jesus as well. That we can see on the evidence of what's been there and, a, and an eyewitness who's told us that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he lives. John understood that, he believed, and we can believe also. Well, the Bible writers of the Old Covenant also anticipated the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, um, the Apostle Peter, uh, later in the book of Acts, cites Psalm 16, which prophesied that God's king would not uh, remain in the grave and rot. Uh, Peter notes of Psalm 16 that the writer foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to Hades uh, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. And he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so as followers of the Lord Jesus, uh, we believe that Jesus is the living Son of God, who is risen and is the one who's been able to pour out God's Spirit into our hearts to change our lives as well. Jesus is the risen Son of God who gives us forgiveness of our sins, something that we can be very grateful for. And furthermore, he gives us hope as he promises to bring us into his kingdom at the end, which is something we look forward to. And in this passage, we've seen something of the evidence of that resurrected Jesus. We now see a movement in the passage from sorrow to surprising joy in chapter 20, verse 10. I'll pick it up there. If you want to read along with me, you'll, you'll stay in touch with this. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she, didn't, she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. This is an interesting part of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, Mary's visited by two angels and she seems to be unmoved by this supernatural encounter. It's probably because she's very sad. She's focused on the idea that somebody's taken Jesus away, uh, so much so that she doesn't even recognise when Jesus is then with her. And at one level we can appreciate this kind of situation when people get overwhelmed with anxiety or sorrow uh, maybe when we're frightened or, or sad, uh, different thoughts can go through our mind and it's hard to think straight. It's hard to see things for what they are uh, when we're so depressed or sad or frightened. And here we can see that Mary is dominated by the idea that uh, somebody's taken Jesus away and it's hard for her to get her mind off that idea and back onto the promises that Jesus gave about the fact that he would be raised from the dead. It's hard for Mary to see this reality of Jesus before her, even as he speaks to her. But her sorrow starts to give away to joy. In verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a warm expression. And the tone of her response now changes, doesn't it? Just as uh, Peter and jo John saw Jesus and believed, now Mary can get past her sadness and she sees the risen Lord. And her feelings start to follow the facts. She knows that he's risen, everything's okay, she can be joyful. But do we have that kind of joy in our lives? Do we have a hope that's a, a real and genuine that leads us 
to live joyful lives. I mean, I must say there's nothing quite like feelings of hopelessness. Feeling that there's no hope can grind people down. The idea that uh, life is meaningless, that there's no bright future, uh, can tend to wither people's feelings of hope. And that's a worldview that many people live with, um, a worldview that life's one darn thing after another uh, and there is no hope. In fact, um, some philosophers uh, think this way about life. One of the more famous ones was a guy called Bertrand Russell. <clears throat> and uh, he, he puts this into words, his his foundations for thinking about life and hope about the future. I thought I'd read this section so that you might appreciate how dark some people's worldview is. He says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. I'm going to have a drink. Thanks, Bethany. So he starts talking about man being the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, as in there's no planning about this universe kicking off. He says that his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental colliding of atoms. It's all just accidental. That no fire... No heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. That's from Bertrand Russell. Now, I'm just going to put that in in a summary form so you know what's being said here. He's saying the only firm foundation we've got to build our lives on is a foundation of despair and meaninglessness. According to Bertrand Russell, there is no meaning in life. There is no... There's no hope now, and there's no hope beyond the grave. The sun's going to go out one day, and the universe is going to get wrapped up. It's great stuff, isn't it? Makes you want to spring out of bed in the morning, doesn't it? Get on with your life. But that's not Mary's view of the world, is it? That's not Mary's life and worldview. She's not filled with unyielding despair. Instead, she's filled with a great deal of hope 
and with joy because she's met, she's met the risen Lord Jesus. She's come to terms with a, a living hope that's going to, that it, it starts now as the Lord gives us life and it extends into eternity, even when the sun goes out. But the question is, do we share that kind of hope? Do we live uh, with that, that foundation for hope in our lives as we uh, face the future? I'd sooner stand with Mary in her hope than, than Bertrand Russell. Well, Jesus points to uh, hope of the future in the next few verses as well as he speaks about the fact that this isn't even the end for him. Uh, for the ascension of Jesus is foretold in verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. And the ascension of Jesus is uh, part of his exaltation. He goes to prepare a place for his people, whom he promises to come back and take to be with him. But prior to that time, we live now, even in this fallen world, uh, even now we live with a hope, not only that we are forgiven, but that we are children of God and we look forward to being with him into eternity. We're not like Bertrand Russell with his despair as he thinks about life and death in the universe. Instead, we have the knowledge that Jesus is the risen living Lord and Saviour, that he's in control of all things and that he cares for us. That's, that's the foundation for our life and faith. And so as we close then, I'd like to just draw our mind back to a couple of the things that have been uh, said in this sermon. The first one was that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus sought to be uh, secret disciples at one stage, but they, they made a, t- a change. They turned and, and no longer sought to fear people, but instead to fear the Lord. And may we be a bit more like that. Let's think about not being secret disciples this week, uh, but think about being people who seek to serve the Lord rather than to to fear and please people. The second thing is we've got some good firm foundations for why we live as Christians. We've seen evidence of the risen Lord Jesus, the strips of linen, the empty tomb and Jesus bearing witness to his followers. And this, this firm foundation of evidence is a good basis for our faith. And finally, we've seen Mary have a different approach to life. Now that she's met the risen Lord Jesus, she can approach life with a great deal of joy. And so may we be people who have joy in our lives, knowing that Jesus is our risen Lord as well and that he cares for us. Uh, Let us close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this part of your word which moves from sorrow to joy. Lord, we... um, think about our lives as we seek to please you and serve you and Lord we pray that you'd forgive us for the times when we've been secret disciples and those who've been more concerned to please people. Lord help us instead to uh, seek to please and honour you. Lord we thank you for the message this morning which has shown us the evidence that Jesus is risen and we give you thanks that he uh, gives us life both now and 
in the future. And so, Lord, we pray that as we live, um, we'd be conscious of the hope that we have in Jesus and what he's done for us. We thank you that he's brought us forgiveness of sins and that he promises to take us to be with you into eternity. Lord, please help us to be mindful of um, how we can also share this this news of, of joy, this good news of salvation uh, with the people in the world uh, where you've put us. Help us to be wise in the way that we live towards outsiders. But Lord, help us to be uh, very grateful for the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen.